0: please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. The passage is there on your outline. that's in your bulletin. You can have that there open or whatever other uh, medium you have with the scripture there printed. Ephesians 4. We are now entering the second half of the book of Ephesians. The first half of Ephesians was a celebratory declaration of God's love for his people, for us. The first half was about our glorious salvation in Christ, our adoption as the children of God. It was about God's magnificent building of a holy temple in his honor to proclaim Christ to the world through the witness of his church, the temple. We are a united people as a result of what God has done for us in Christ. We had sin in common before, and now we have Christ as our Redeemer in common now. So the first half of Ephesians is about what is true. The second half of Ephesians, starting today, in chapter 1 of verse 4, is about what we must now do in light of what is true. The instructions instructions which Paul lays down in these chapters before us, 4 through 6, they're not just duties which the Christian is required to perform, They are to be understood as the outworking of the marvelous salvation that God has accomplished in Christ and has declared in the opening chapters. The second half of Ephesians is about what we must now do in light of what is true. So here as I read verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we, your people, acknowledge what you have done for us in Christ, how you have called us to yourself as your sons and daughters through adoption. In light of our adoption as your children, we are now brothers and sisters in Christ. May we manifest the invisible reality of our union with Christ and with each other in a visible way. Lord God, please empower our church to express outwardly in our interactions together as a church family the supernatural unity that we have through our joint commonality in Christ, Christ who is our Savior. I pray this in his name. Amen. My normal approach uh, to a sermon or preaching the Bible to you is a pattern of explanation with some illustration, and then it leads to application. It's a pretty simple format. i followed my whole life, and I find it to be uh, a bit of an emulating of what you see in Ephesians. What is true, and then what to do. What is true doctrinally, and then how to live in light of it. Um, This is a, a regular pattern of Paul's. He uses it in Ephesians, in Colossians, and in Romans, just to name a few. So what I attempt to do in sermons is to, by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, try to guide you through the Bible's meaning with the goal to have it applied in our everyday lives, the lives we're living right now. The doctrine of chapters 1 through 3 defines a new identity for all of us in Christ. Every saint receives this in Christ. It's God's gift to us. In these opening chapters that we have studied, we have described for us deep doctrinal truths that should be transformational. They work themselves out in our life. What is true, now we come to what to do. So this morning, rather than build up to application, I would like to start with some application, then explain the text, and while I'm explaining it, you can test whether the applications I'm insisting upon are accurate to what the passage says. It appears this passage is describing the pursuit of unity in the church, and the pursuit of unity in the church, our efforts to see ourselves harmonious or unified, is a mark of spiritual health. We could also say that if we're experiencing division or we're not unified, that there's a lack of spiritual health or maturity in some way. It seems that the passage is describing attitudes that are based on right doctrine that will lead to a community filled with what you might describe as a patient love for one another. If we confess God's sovereign election, his unconditional grace to us in Christ, his calling of us as his children through adoption, his making us into his holy temple, if we confess these things are true, it will naturally follow that we seek after the practice of loving kindness toward one another. A church that believes what Ephesians says about God's love to us in Christ will manifest great care and great consideration for one another. So, more poignantly, in this era when people are seeming to get very upset and agitated, even Christians, mind you, over matters like epidemiology, masks, government, politics, elections, and social issues, we are the people of God, no matter what we all individually think of these things, We are to be ever mindful of what the passage says about our pursuit of unity together. You know and I know, brothers and sisters, you've been around long enough, even the youngest among you, that the current irritations and aggravations are temporary. There will be new ones that rise up. In any event, our life together in Christ is to be eternal. And so that should have some bearing in how we view whatever's happening to us in a temporary way. If we are truly God's children through Christ, we will be pursuing these things. So let us live out our redemption in Christ that we studied for these three chapters of Ephesians. Let's live this out through the eager pursuit of unity, despite all the ways that people are walking around anxious and angry today. Here's the reality of this passage that we will now examine together. The pursuit of unity is a key mark of a healthy church. If we are a church divided one way or another beyond Christ and his word in secondary and tertiary matters, then we are not spiritually healthy. And notice I'm using the word divided here, not disagreement. People will have disagreements. Christians will have disagreements. Disagreements don't mean we stop loving each other. It doesn't mean we're not loving each other. But division, that's different. That implies separation, or I don't want to be around you. That's disunity. Our life in Christ is to be about unity in Christ. So Paul's exhortation before us in the beginning of chapter 4 is for believers to pursue. We all have to pursue it. It won't just happen. It's something we have to engage in. It's true there's an invisible reality of our union that God looks upon us and sees us each in Christ, every one of us, and he sees us as his people. That's an invisible reality. It's true. But the outworking of it visibly That requires engagement, and that's what this passage is encouraging. The pursuit of unity is a key mark of a healthy church. So the passage could be broken down in a very simple way that you see on the outline. It's a way that many Bible teachers have divided the passage. We are exhorted or encouraged as a church first to pursue unity in our calling or through our calling. That's verse 1. Then you'll see in the middle two verses that we are to pursue our unity in, con, in our conduct and through our conduct. And finally, the last few verses, we are to pursue unity in our confession. It lays out what the essential matters are that we have to be unified concerning and how this impacts the rest of our pursuit of unity. So let's approach the challenges of our day in particular, the ones we know of, and apply this passage to it and see how it does inform us and direct us. First, in verse 1, we are urged to pursue unity in our calling. It describes it as our calling, or through our calling, we might say. Verse 1 says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord encourage you to walk or urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Therefore, at the very beginning, I therefore, this is a reference back to everything that's been building up. It's a transition now from the first three chapters to the last three chapters. It's in light of God's glorious salvation, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a certain way. In light of the church's unique call as God's holy temple, I encourage you to walk in a manner that's worthy of it. Uh, in light of our placement in union with Christ and with each other, I urge you, Paul says. And Paul identifies himself as a prisoner for the Lord. This refers to the fact that he was actually a prisoner in Rome at the time of writing this. But he was there for the Lord, and he was there for the Lord's service, for us to receive the word of the Lord from him. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, from this place of sacrificial service For Christ, on your behalf, Paul says to us, I urge you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy. The word urge describes urgency. I exhort you. It's not so much a correction he's about to give, but an emphatic encouragement, you might say. I exhort you, or as the New American Standard says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy. I beseech you to walk worthy. In a manner worthy. In other words, this is going to take some intentionality. This is going to take some focus and some energy. Paul says, I urge you or I entreat you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To walk in a manner. You're to live in a certain way, carry yourself in a certain way. You know, everybody has a walk. Did you ever notice that? Like, literally, their gait. I can. Pick out people from a long ways based on how they're walking. Oh, I know that's so-and-so. I used to, uh, last year, I would watch my boys' games online, and sometimes they're soccer games, and sometimes it would be such a wide angle, I couldn't tell their faces or their numbers, but I can tell the way my sons walk. That's, that's AJ. I, I know how he walks. You could tell. He's compared to somebody else. It's just, it defines who we are, how our gait is, or it defines who we are identifies us the walk of our life walk in a manner worthy walk in such a way is the approach of our life the way we ha- that's how he rolls someone might say oh that's not how he rolls they mean that's how they live that's how they walk that's how they make decisions or carry themselves and paul saying to us christians in light of all this about who we are in christ i urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called the calling to which you have been called. This is the manner that we are supposed to walk in light of. In light of that calling. What's meant by this calling? Now, calling here is not like this arbitrary call, like when your mom calls you in to eat and you decide whether you're going to go or not. That's not the calling we're talking about. The calling here, when spoken of God's call on us, it's a done deal. It's something he's done. He's called us and placed us in a certain, in a certain identity. Um, we're recognized by him in a certain way. That's our calling. And so far, we know that calling has to do with being called in Christ, in union with Jesus. That's your identity. When God the Father looks at you, no matter what you did this morning or yesterday or how you feel, you are identified as a person, a man or a woman in Christ. This is your primary identity in the universe, the one that matters most. You're in Christ. Paul says to us in that light, which you know is true, walk in a manner worthy of Of the calling to which you have been called. We're called as his children to be a part of his family, his new creation, his new community, members of his kingdom, subjects to the king, his holy temple, unified, the people of God unified. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, you are unified. We are called in Christ and together in Christ. This is to be the primary identifying feature even in our lives. And that's the part that we work at this side of heaven to carry out what that invisible reality is, to carry it out visibly. Uh, not too long ago, I started helping my boys fill out college applications, and they will ask you oftentimes for essay questions. And I'm interested in what the colleges are inter- uh, want to know about somebody who's applying. Here's a question. What captivates you? Give us an essay on this question. What is most important to you? What motivates you? Please give a 500-word essay on what motivates you. How would your friends describe your core values, one essay asks. What do you see as the purpose for your life? Now, I'm sure there's all sorts of answers students will give, pers- perspective students will give. But for the Christian, at least in their minds, when they hear those kinds of things, the very first thing they must go to or have to go to is, how does this question get answered in light of my identity in Christ, who I am in Christ? what Christ calls me to, what this means about my values, my core values, what captivates me, what's most important to me. Now, I'm not suggesting in the college essay they're wanting all of that detail, but we as Christians should always be stopped with that reality of our identity when decisions face us because that's our calling now. Jesus is our identity. I appreciated Joel's prayer towards the end when he just made simple statements about Christ is our life. Christ is our answer. This is the beginning of Paul's exhortation to walk in a certain way that we would align it together with who we are in Christ to see in reality that which, in reality of living, that which is true behind the scenes. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, from this point, from verse 1, he's going on to describe what our attitude ought to be like in light of being in Christ. Because of who we are in Jesus, we should think or act this way, and he's going to spell it out now in verse 2 and verse 3. We should have attitudes that are a product of our calling, which will manifest through our conduct. So secondly, notice, in Christ, we are to pursue unity in our conduct, or you could say Through our conduct. Verse 2 and verse 3. With all humility and gentleness. So a description now of walking in a manner worthy of our calling. In all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. I know if you're like me, you don't have to think long, like an hour ago, when that wasn't happening, or two hours, or yet, you know what I'm saying? This is so convicting as it points out to us how difficult this is in our own lives. Verse 3 eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. A little let off I'll give you is it says it has to be maintained. So we're going to fall down on this. We're not going to do perfectly with this. We don't even do close to perfectly. So we have to be eager to maintain these things in light of our calling in the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. One commentator, and I've seen this identified in sermons done, just on these two verses very easily, these could be called in verse 2 and verse 3, the five foundation stones of Christian unity. You see them there listed. Humility and gentleness and patience, forbearance and love. Let's look at those a little more closely. We are to pursue humility as a way of walking in a worthy manner, in a way that emulates who we are in Christ. Humility, very simply put, is the opposite of pride. It's living in light of knowing that everything we have, anything that's been accomplished by us, or for us, or we benefited from. It's all of God's grace. It's a, it's, a, it's a stature of thankfulness to God and appreciation for our helplessness apart from him. This is what provokes humility in us, and it will impact how we look at other people. We will never see ourselves as better than anyone else. It's counting others as more important than ourselves. It's being able to wash people's feet willingly and never thinking we're above anybody. That's what humility is. And there is nobody who had every right to lord it over us, no one had more of a right than Jesus. And Paul says of Jesus, and we know from his example when we see it in the Gospels, but Paul tells us Christians in Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So whatever you think your right is, you'll think of someone else's situation and count them as more important. This is the first step of this living out our conduct in Christ. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, Paul says in Philippians, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we are to pursue humility, but the text also says we are to pursue gentleness. And you'll see how they kind of overlap each other, but they're not identical. So we pursue gentleness as part of our identity in Christ. Paul's talking, when he says gentleness, about the word meekness. That's a bit of a lowliness. It's a humility for sure, but it's in practice now in relationship with others. It's the absence of personal promotion, letting others go first, being careful with others, being mindful of the sensitivity of others, empathetic towards others even. The gentle person is not easily provoked. I read it said one place, a meek spirit like wet tinder will not easily take fire. Think of the words of Christ in Matthew eleven twenty nine. take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We are to pursue gentleness as part of walking in a worthy manner, in a manner that comports with who we are in Christ. But it also says, we are to pursue patience and forbearance, or bearing with one another. That's forbearance. These two terms are closely related, but I want to show you there's a bit of a difference, and we can appreciate the nuances. We are to pursue patience. Patience has to do with long-suffering when waiting for something to happen or someone to do something. To be patient, it's a matter of waiting for someone maybe to catch up. Think of when you had um, toddlers, uh, and you were trying to get anywhere, anywhere anywhere on earth, and it never goes fast. You're like, why aren't you walking faster? Well, they got small legs, that's one of them, and I'm impatient come on, let's go. We can never, I remember walking with the kids, we can never walk in a straight line anywhere. If I was walking, I'm like, I'm not going to look back because they're probably zigzagging all over the place and they're probably 15 yards behind me and you can hear the impatience that I'm describing in how I view. That's what patience is though. It's being mindful of their situation, letting them catch up, not getting freaked out because they're not right with you. Understanding it'll take some people longer. That's what patience is. That's what we practice towards each other in the church. Just like Jesus is practicing with all of us, thank the Lord. But forbearance is something else. Forbearance is similar to parents, to patients, but it has to do with it wearing on you and irritating you and actually maybe an irritation that you're putting up with something that's bothering you, like someone giving you elbows to the ribs. I remember being in an elevator with all my kids. I'm picking on my kids today. Sorry, kids. But this just life in the pastor's house. We're all in an elevator one time. I had three of the boys with me in the an elevator. And they're all close to me. And people were packed in and I was worried that they were going to like kick somebody and just they're flailing around. Well, the payment for that care for the rest of the people in the elevator was their heads moving back right up my gut high, right in my gut, elbowing me in the, in the thighs. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm just like, well, they can't help it. They're just getting crammed into this thing. And I'm, I'm bearing with this fact. And it's a little painful, but I'm going to do it. So patience is waiting. Forbearance has to do with taking a, some shots to the ribs. From your brothers and sisters in Christ without freaking out on them. Recognizing there's probably some reason, it may, maybe it's out of their control, whatever the case. This is what we're talking about. Now, I want to say something as a bit of warning. I just thought of this at this sermon, so it's always dangerous when I do this. But let me say something about you being forbearing, lest you think it only goes one way. About ten years ago, I roomed with an old friend from seminary at General Assembly. It was—I uh, think it was in Houston somewhere—in to save money on a room. We roomed together. We never roomed together before, so we're we're in the room, and he's over in his double bed, and I'm in mine, thinking that's plenty of distance. I woke up like every couple hours because he was snoring so loud that I could not sleep, and I didn't get a good night's sleep at all. I go to sleep for an hour, then I wake up because I would hear him snoring. Got up in the morning and said, Kyle, i got to be honest, man. I could not sleep last night. He goes, I couldn't either. You were snoring all night, he said to me. So when I was sleeping, he was snoring and vice versa. Like, so just when you think you're forbearing somebody else's elbows, you could be keeping them up too. You follow what I'm saying, brothers and sisters? This is very important for us to recognize. When you think you're getting irritated and putting up with it, you might be the irritant. This is true for us. We have to recognize this and engage in maintaining unity. Finally, kind of the capstone of these five virtues, you might say, or these, these five uh, pillars of Christian unity. We are to pursue love towards one another in the body of Christ, bearing with one another, verse 2, in love. And now this is clearly rooted in what comes in the passage that we just studied before it, about the love of God shown to us in Christ, that this is the basis for all the love we show to one another. The word is agape. The word has to do with a holistic love, a sacrificial love. One commentator said, this is the crown sum of all the other virtues, to love one another like this. For the Christian, in context, it's all based on the incredible love that God has shown us. Sacrificial love. Christ is love, patient love. Love is patient and kind, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians. So, brothers and sisters, we are to actively pursue these attitudes in the church among Christians. To pursue these attitudes, or these virtues, is to go after them. That means we're going after them. We're seeking them. We're desiring these attitudes. Now, the opposite of these, just think about for a moment what they are. Pride towards one another. That's always where strife happens. There's no strife where there's not pride. Impatience, pushiness, intolerance. These things are evidences of the fact that we think of ourselves as better than others. These are evidences of spiritual immaturity, spiritual sickness in our midst. And verse 3 tells us how to engage, how we should view our pursuit of these things. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you see that it's something we have to engage in? It's an invisible reality that God's called the church to. But there's a visible outworking that we are to engage in by God's grace, by his aid. And so we have to, when we think of these things, we've got to eagerly look to, to maintain it in the church. Now the word maintain, that's the active term or the verb term for maintenance. So maintenance is... In the area of practicing, these virtues for the sake of unity have to be ongoing in the church, nonstop. There has to be a maintenance plan consistently in activity. It has to do with upkeep, preserving. It could be preserving something. It could be fixing something. These things are both maintenance. Um, Over the last few years, I have accumulated a fleet of vehicles. We have six cars in our parking lot, and I'm not counting my mother's. Well, not now. One's in college now, but six of them. Now, one of them's new. The rest are between 12 and 45 years old. Most are well at 200,000 miles or over. Three of them are heavily driven by my sons. So they require vigilant upkeep, maintenance. My day off is Wednesday. On almost every Wednesday for the last several months, this is not an exaggeration, I am doing some amount of maintenance on one of these or more of these vehicles. Now, sometimes the maintenance is preventative. Oil changes, filter changes, fluid checks. Sometimes the maintenance is, on, is a repair on a worn part. There could be something creaking or there could be something leaking or there could be a light lit, whatever the case. I have to maintain them regularly to keep them running. And this is the thing. I'm not really complaining about it because I kind of like doing it. And older cars are all I can really work on anyways. In between YouTube videos and reading the manuals, it takes my mind off of other things. It's even therapeutic a little bit before the hunting season starts anyways. And at that time, I can work on a car. And I feel there's a satisfaction with it because... I can fix something for cheaper than it would cost. If I took it somewhere, I like that feeling. And um, knowing that the boys will, or Sherry or whoever's driving these vehicles, myself for that matter, it will be okay in it. There's a satisfaction with that, but it takes maintenance. You can't ever stop because it only takes a couple of Wednesdays off for a lot of stuff to go wrong. We have to be eager to maintain unity in the church the same way I'm describing maintaining vehicles like this. We have to be actively involved. If we're not maintaining it, it's going to go bad eventually we will wear on each other, will be leaking or creaking. That's just the way it is in the life of the church. Even as redeemed sinners, we still have sinner as part of what we struggle with, this part, this side of glory. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Eager to live out humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love. And you know and I know we'll have plenty of chances to test this, won't we? Especially in an era like we are now. People are so irritated and agitated the world over, even in the church. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to check that irritation and that agitation with your Holy Word. What a benefit to us to have this at our disposal. Again, I gave you the application at the beginning. If you think what I'm saying in then, right, then never mind. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace if you feel like it. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as long as you're right. If they're wrong, stick it to them. Right, I, th- I think we know the answer. The pursuit of unity is a key mark of a healthy church. We are to pursue unity in our calling, unity in our conduct, or unity through our calling, unity through our conduct. Finally, look at verses 4 to 6. The beautiful summary of the Christian faith. We're to pursue unity in our confession or through our confession. Now we're talking this corporate expression of what we believe to be true about our God and our Savior. Um, Many scholars believe these last verses are part of an early Christian confession, an apostolic confession that Paul now puts in writing. Look at it, verse 4 to verse 6. There is one body and one spirit. He's emphasizing the unity of this doctrine that we have. As a means to unify us, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, The unity of the doctrinal statement is then to be followed in our unity together with one another. By by saying this out loud, we're reminded of our salvation. Who's called us to the salvation? Who prompts the salvation? And this draws us together, helps us to overlook those things that we would maintain as our personal rights, our personal views, or whatever it may be, and we are drawn together by this confession, this confession that we say out loud. You know, every time we do a confession of faith, it's meant to unify us, unify us around important truths. The Ten Commandments are what we read today. Sometimes we'll read a psalm. Sometimes we'll read the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or some other confession that confesses what we believe. And we can look around and say, yes, brothers and sisters, we believe these truths. And they are a way to hold each other accountable and to encourage one another in these important truths. So we know what's essential when we say it out loud. And things that fall outside of that, those are things we should have a lot of charity concerning. And there's a wonderful confession for us in verse 4. Look at verse 4 first. One body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One body, that's the body of Christ, the church. We're one church, created by one spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, has called us together. Now, I want you to notice in verses 4, 5, and 6 that the Trinity that we sang concerning in the very first hymn, and most of our hymns have some Trinitarian reference. This is important. One body created by one spirit, verse 4. This, by the way, is something that Paul emphasizes continuously among the churches. He's trying to break down the dividing walls between people within the church to see them as one. In in 1 Corinthians, for instance, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, Paul wrote, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. One body, one spirit. But also, in verse 4, one hope associated with our call now. That hope has to do with our call. And our calling is in Christ. We've seen that already in the passage. So our hope is in Christ, and the hope is for eternal life. The hope is for there to be no actual death for believers. Um, there's eternal living in Christ. That's our hope in Christ. So that one hope, that's what unites us. But verse 5 goes on. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord. Now it's a reference to the Lord Jesus himself, the king, the ruler of our lives, our master. In this term associated with Jesus is not to be underestimated. Because the word Lord, when it's translated back into the, to the Greek Old Testament, it was the same word used for Yahweh in the Hebrew, which was only to be applied to God himself. And Jesus is called Lord in this, in this passage. And in many times in the New Testament, showing his deity. Freely applied by Paul and the other writers to Jesus. One Lord, one faith. This is the Christian faith, one faith. One system of right belief, Christianity, as described by his word. We're not speaking of faith as the verb now, that we have faith in Christ, but the faith, that body of doctrine, which we as Christians must believe. It also says, one baptism in verse 5. Baptism is the marker of entrance into the body of Christ. It's the way we recognize Are being part of the body of Christ. It's also a reminder of how Jesus washes away our sins when we become his. So there's one baptism that describes, that manifests the remission of sins in Christ. One faith, one baptism, and then verse 6, one God. God the Father, the creator of all. You see the Trinity, the Spirit reference too with regard to the creation of the body of Christ— one Lord, re- referencing Jesus, who is our hope based on his sacrifice and his resurrection. And one God, God the Father, the creator of all, the one true God who is the Lord over all. In in the context of this book, reference to the fact that there's one people, not Jews and Gentiles. He's Father of all those people who are in him. And he's Lord over everybody on the earth. Even if they don't have a child relationship through Christ, he is the Lord sovereign over everyone in everything. And he's everywhere. He cannot be escaped. Trinity is active. The Spirit, the Son, and the Father. And we are united together in our triune God through God's work accomplished in Christ and applied by the Spirit. Our oneness in this creedal statement, this confessional statement, is an invisible reality that is confirmed in Christ in the passages bidding us to live it out in real life. Prove it in your real life. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This exalted affirmation of God's transcendence, he's over all, and his pervasive imminence as the scholars say, through all and in all. Paul has in mind the whole of the cosmos, everything that has been created by this one God, and he is our Father. If he is our father, we are his children, and then we are brothers and sisters in Christ. As I mentioned in the introduction, my usual approach is to provide the explanation of a passage with some illustrations in order to set up the application. I'm a simple preacher in that regard, have been my whole life. Show what is true, then what we should do in our day. But this day, especially in light of the unusual amount of agitation and irritation among believers about things like government mandates, masks, politics, elections, to name a few of the current irritants. I'm sure you can add a few more. I thought it would be good to challenge you with the application of this passage at the very beginning, which you know I chose Ephesians way before this particular period of time, and it's just where we fell. I hope this approach served to make you think about how we might live out our calling together in Christ. Indeed, the weeks and the months to come will, with no question, bring us many more challenges to our harmony. So we need to be engaged in the maintaining of this unity described in the passage. You know, over the last few months, Nathan and I have had opportunity to talk to many pastor friends the country over. And it's really broken our hearts. Almost every, at least every few days, one of us will say to the other, hey, did you hear from so-and-so? They're having a terrible time in their church. There's a lot of division in their church over this or that issue, some of the ones I mentioned. And that, that breaks my heart to hear because I know how difficult it is for uh, shepherds, especially to try to navigate that with so many people in the church. I hope that is not true here. But we have to be eager to maintain, to fight that because that will be our tendency We'll have to recognize that's true in our lives. The passage anchors in our great confession, the Christian confession, and that should re-establish us again about what's most important and where we should have charity. I often reference John R. W. Stott. He's one of my favorite teachers and preachers. And I keep hoping I'll get to a place in my life where I can have my own quotes that someone else would quote me concerning, but I'm quickly realizing in my forty oh my, I'm 49—in my 50th year— I'm not going to be that kind of a quotable person, at least not about profound spiritual things. So I'll read you a quote from John Stott because it hits the nail on the head, and I hope it encourages you. He said, There is room for differences of conviction among us as to the precise form or forms in which God wants Christian unity to be expressed. But we should be, all of us should be eager for some visible expression of Christian unity provided always that we do not sacrifice fundamental Christian truth in order to achieve it. Christian unity arises from our having one Father, one Savior, and one indwelling Spirit. So we cannot possibly foster a unity which pleases God, either if we have denied the Trinity or have not come personally to know God the Father through the reconciling work of his Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's hold fast to those deep doctrinal truths we've seen in the first chapters of Ephesians. And let's be charitable about other matters so that we can practice, we can manifest what is invisibly true. We can manifest it to be visibly true. And so, do what Jesus prayed for in John 17. Make it clear to the world that this body of redeemed sinners love each other and that proves that Christ has been sent from God. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have entered that portion of Ephesians that will challenge the genuineness of our faith in you. Please give us help as a church family to not only celebrate the glorious doctrine expressed in the opening chapters of Ephesians, but also pursue the attitudes and the behavior now described for us in chapter four and following. Lord, please grant our church family unity and harmony, Give us patient love for one another in a time of unrest, irritation, and agitation in the world over. Make your church to be a household of gentleness and patience towards one another. Indeed, give us the kind of unity that is so clearly supernatural that it makes the world take note of Christ our Savior. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.